my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. Blank is the killer. Hello and what's up? It's me, Josh Baker. Welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast, where I cover six new-to-me horror movies with a seventh spooky topic at the end. This episode we have witch hunters, odd abductors, and dead bros. Now sit still and listen or you might accidentally trigger a trap that'll send a paint can at your head, or a katana, or a knife chandelier. Why did we decide to have the listening party in this death house? Number 1. Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunters, 2013, directed by Tommy Workola. Hansel and Gretel escape, then kill a witch as kids. They grow up and start hunting witches. Witches are planning on becoming invincible during a blood moon. They need a white witch heart, so they kidnap Gretel, since her mom was a white witch. Hansel and some others crash the Sabbath, and once Gretel is freed, they all kill the lead witch. The residents of the village where Hansel and Gretel grew up, witches and a troll named Edward, are the killers. That's right, the village people killed the duo's mom and dad because their mom was a witch. After the hell I put myself through last episode, I decided to start this one off with a dumb, witch-centered action movie. I mean, it has witches in it, so it counts as a horror movie, just like Hocus Pocus. HG Witch Hunters is a lot better than I expected it to be. It came out in the early 2010s, when releasing gritty fairy tale-based movies was a thing. I don't know why that was a trend. HG Witch Hunters starts off with a cool title sequence, which shows us the duo's growth from young one-time witch killers to grown-up witch-killing experts. The title sequence is really neat. It's basically a series of animated articles detailing our hero's witch-hunting escapades. I don't want to mislead anyone. This movie isn't good. A lot of stupid things are in this movie, but this movie makes up for all of that in enjoyment factor. It's an incredibly enjoyable movie and has some really interesting concepts that I would have liked to have seen fleshed out more. There are a ton of different types of witches. We mostly focus on one main style for a majority of the movie, but once we get to the witch's Blood Moon Sabbath, you get to see a ton of interesting witch designs. You see old witches, bloated witches, legless witches, Siamese witches, hair-covered witches, all kinds of witches. I wish the movie had H and G hunt more witches in different types of environments. They talk about encounters with terrible swamp witches and other ridiculous types, but a majority of the screen time is taken up by crackly, pale-skinned witches that all look similar. All the witches also have wands that they use to channel their magic. There are a bunch of different wand designs, and they all look unique and cool. Even the ones that are just twisted wood. 
The weapons that are used by the hunters are very unique and awesome too. There's a gun that folds out into a rifle, a crossbow that can shoot in multiple directions, a gatling gun, and more. One of the movie's biggest strengths is the design. A lot of what I just talked about was done practically. There's also a troll in the movie that looks pretty good. The animatronic troll almost makes it into the incredible category, but looks just a bit off. I am very glad that the director, Tommy Wercola, who also directed the Dead Snow movies, pushed for things to be practical. This movie wouldn't have been nearly as good if all the amazing practical makeup effects and animatronics were replaced with CGI. There is a lot more blood in this than I expected. A guy's limbs are torn off. The troll bashes and stomps people to death. Witches get diced up after flying their brooms into tree-mounted wires. And multiple heads are shot off. The gore in this looks cartoony and fake, but in the best way. It's fun. The movie is fun. Is the plot stupid? Of course. Is there any reason for the witch leader to tell H&G her plan, which pretty much leads to its ruination? No, but villains always gotta spill the beans for some reason. It must be a weird compulsion. The leader could have totally killed Hansel and not even have to worry about him. Why didn't she just do that? If all your witch friends were coming over for a Sabbath, wouldn't you have someone stand guard? I mean... I guess the witches didn't know the weapons were going to be blessed by some anti-evil witch magic, but still. The acting in this is fine. Given the premise, amazing acting isn't necessary. Jeremy Renner is Hansel and does just as well as he does in every movie he's in. Gemma Arterton is Gretel. I think she's great in this. Besides this movie, she's been in a lot of stinkers, unfortunately. Fomka Jansen plays the lead witch. She's not bad. It sounds like she was stressed out by the amount of prosthetics she had to wear while in full witch form. I know I'd hate sitting around for hours getting makeup applied and removed. Peter Stormare plays the sheriff, who's a big jerk. It sounds like he kills the mayor in an extended version of the film, which would have made him a killer. And also in that extended version, the sheriff and his posse try to do more terrible things besides just taking Gretel to jail after capturing her. If the cutout part of the capture scene was included in the version I watched, Edward the Troll wouldn't have been on the killer list since he only kills the sheriff and his men to free Gretel. Killing the posse to get Gretel out of police custody is a lot different than killing the posse to save Gretel from a horrific situation. If you saw the extended cut, Here's the killer list for that version. The residents of the village where Hansel and Gretel grew up, witches, and the sheriff are the killers. Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters is a fun time. If you are looking for something that will let your brain chill out after you've watched a terrible horror franchise, I recommend giving this a watch. Even if you aren't trying to forget some terrible garbage about a head pumpkin, watch Witch Hunters for some feel-good fun. Fun fact, Will Ferrell was one of the movie's producers. One last thing, the first witch's candy house door kind of looks like a butthole. It had to be said. Number 2, The Collection, 2012, directed by Marcus Dunstan. A crazy mass dude referred to as The Collector sets up a bunch of creative murder devices at a rave 
which end up killing everyone but a girl named Elena, who he captures, and a guy named Arkin, who escapes. Arkin had previously been the Collector's prisoner. Arkin is forced by a mercenary group to lead an assault on the Collector's headquarters to free Elena. After entering, deadly Home Alone trap shenanigans ensue. Elena and Arkin make it out alive. Arkin then tracks down the Collector and captures him. The Collector, Mercenaries, and Arkin are the killers. The Collector had captives in one part of the house that rush at the Mercs and Arkin. They seem like they might be a little crazy and dangerous, but they were innocent and probably just wanted help escaping, so I don't fully count the Mercs and Arkin's slaughter of them all to be out of self-defense. I mean, sure, they should have asked nicely for help instead of attacking the group, but I probably would have done the same thing if I was in their shoes. I remember seeing trailers for this back when I was in high school, and this movie isn't anything like what I remember being advertised. That's because it's the sequel to that movie I saw trailers for. Yep, I'm an idiot. The first movie is called The Collector. I thought I just misremembered the name when I clicked on The Collection. To be fair, you never feel like you're missing anything if you jump right into the sequel. I am definitely going to watch the first one for the next movie. No, I'm not going to talk about them in order. You'll have to follow along on this idiot's journey with me. The Collection is everything I want from a stupid, serial killer horror movie that's obviously inspired by Saw. The director, Marcus Dunstan, wrote for the Saw movies before making his directorial debut with The Collector. The Collection has some of the most ridiculous scenes that have ever graced my TV. An entire warehouse rave is murdered in the beginning of the movie. The Collector somehow rigs a giant saw blade monstrosity to mow down the dance floor. He then crushes another group that he captures in a giant fence cage. Stragglers are then taken out by spring-loaded wall katanas. All the gore for these ridiculous events is done well enough. If you are going to have something this stupidly awesome in your movie, I don't mind digital blood here and there. That doesn't mean practical effects are absent either. We still get some nice practical gore, and there are a ton of creepy bone and body part sculptures that were actually crafted for the film. The design of the Collector's Lair is great. It's dark and spooky, with a nice serving of grit. The lair is set up in an old hotel, which gave me some heavy H.H. Holmes vibes. If you have a morbid fascination with serial killers and haven't looked up H.H. Holmes, take a look-see. He ran a murder labyrinth out of his custom-made hotel, mostly during the World Fair. There is allegedly a movie about him being made starring Leonardo DiCaprio, but I'll believe it when I see a trailer. The collection doesn't have the finest acting in the world, but I didn't hate anyone's performance. Everyone does a good enough job. Johanna Brady, an actress who I enjoy, has a small role in this. She played one of the main characters on a fun internet show called Video Game High School, and was on the first season of Unreal. She plays Elena's friend in the movie and gets crushed to death early on. The biggest name in the collection is Christopher McDonald. You probably know him best as Shooter McGavin. He plays Elena's dad and is in the movie for maybe a combined three minutes. I'm not sure if this movie is a good sequel since I didn't see the original. I'm assuming that it upped the body count and creativity of the kills given the ridiculous nature of what happens at the rave alone. If the first movie is only half as insane 
as the collection, I'll love it too. If you want to see a bananas horror movie with a bunch of creative kills that's mostly set in a crazy lair, this is for you. I definitely recommend checking out the collection. Number 3, The Collector, 2009, directed by Marcus Dunstan. A guy named Arkin just finished working a construction gig at the house of a diamond broker. His baby mama borrowed money from loan sharks and needs to pay them back by midnight. So Arkin breaks back into the house to steal a big diamond. Unfortunately for him, a serial killer, credited as the collector, has set up a bunch of deadly home alone traps in the house. A bunch of people end up dead and Arkin gets captured by the collector. The collector, his dog, Arkin, and the youngest daughter of the diamond broker are the killers. Arkin and the youngest daughter? Yep. They end up electrocuting an innocent dude to death by pushing over a fish tank and a television that has a video of weird clowns playing on it. I know electrocuting someone to death sounds repetitive, but Mary Webbs says the definition of electrocute is to kill or severely injure by electric shock. Oh, and a cop is killed by the dog. After seeing the ridiculous kills and set designs in the sequel, I thought I would definitely have a fun time with The Collector. It's actually pretty bland and dumb in comparison. So the Diamond Brokers family is going on vacation after the construction job is done. Okay, the job is finished. Arkin sees his baby mama that same night, then ends up back at the house all in the same day. Somehow from the time that Arkin left, The Collector has had enough time to rig a bunch of intricate traps throughout the entire house. That doesn't make any sense. Why would he even set all these traps up when he has already captured the parents? I guess to kill the daughters? The traps are for the daughters. That makes some sense now that I think about it. Still, how the heck would he have had enough time to set up all those death traps? Also, why does he blow up the house before leaving? If you were going to set up a bunch of deadly traps that will kill people, why would you destroy them all instead of letting whoever comes to investigate the house fall prey to the traps? Mr. Collector, I don't want to tell you how to do your murder job, but why spend all this time putting traps up if you aren't going to let the first responders have a doozy of a time with them? If I handcrafted a beautiful guitar, I'd like it to be played till the day it turns to dust. You just torched your guitar. The kills in The Collector aren't nearly as crazy as the sequel. That's to be expected. There are two enjoyable kills. There's the hilarious Too Many Bear Traps boyfriend tumble and the I got sent flying into a spiky projector screen and all I would have gotten to defend myself was a lousy pair of scissors trap. Both kills are funny and a sight to behold. On the other hand, there is a ton of torture porn in this movie that doesn't do anything for me. The dad gets tortured, Arkin gets tortured, the mom gets tortured. I'm not a fan of torture porn. It's not for me. Even though there is a bunch of torture porn, part of which includes the collector cutting Arkin's stomach open and trying to get cockroaches that sound like bats for some reason to enter the wound, the most grotesque part of the movie for me is when the collector breaks down a door with the guy that was electrocuted's face. Oh jeez, is that scene brutal. For that guy's sake, I hope he was dead at that point. 
All the gore in the movie looks great and gross. Arkin gets tortured and cut up a ton. He doesn't have many cuts or scars when the sequel starts, right after the events of this movie, so he must heal like Wolverine. It's time for everyone's favorite part of the podcast, the pet warning. Two pets die in this, and both pet deaths are hilarious, not disturbing. The first is a cat that starts off being stuck to a floor covered in sticky acid. The cat is helped off the floor and then ends up getting cut in half by a guillotine window trap. The second is the collector's dog. It runs at Arkin, who starts a fire in a small trash can, then puts it on the dog's head. He then throws the dog at the collector, who ends up shooting the flying dog corpse with a shotgun. Normally, with these warnings, the pet deaths are something to be avoided, so it's nice to see some humorous pet deaths instead of depressing ones. It was a happy accident that I ended up watching The Collection before seeing The Collector, because if I had watched these movies in order, I probably wouldn't have given the sequel a chance. Go straight to watching The Collection, and if you really want to see what happened to Arkin before the events of that film, go back and watch The Collector. Just pretend it's a crappy prequel instead of the first movie. Seriously though, you don't need to spend your time watching it to enjoy The Collection. Number 4, Split, 2016, directed by M. Night Shyamalan. A man whose Christian name is Kevin has dissociative identity disorder. He has 23 other identities. Three of these identities that were banned from taking over Kevin band together and kidnap three girls to sacrifice to a new 24th identity referred to as the Beast. The girls try to escape but fail. The Beast shows up, kills Kevin's psychiatrist who ended up being in the wrong place at the wrong time, and two of the girls. The Beast is about to kill the last girl, Cassie, but lets her live since she is damaged like he is. The Beast is the killer. Who would have thought that M. Night would make another semi-enjoyable movie. Not this guy. Should M. Night be credited with making this movie enjoyable? I'm not sure. I mean, he wrote and directed it, but I feel that he isn't the reason why the movie is a good time. This movie could have easily been a poop fest if it wasn't for the amazing acting from James McAvoy. Not a lot of people could have pulled off playing a ton of different characters, such as a nine-year-old, a middle-aged woman, an eccentric fashionista, and a beast of a man, but McAvoy does an amazing job. Kudos to you, Mr. McAvoy, for taking such a huge risk. I don't think any other currently successful actors would have taken a chance on an M. Night movie. Not a lot really happens in this movie, now that I think about it. We get a lot of acting from McAvoy as different characters, we spend time with his psychiatrist for the sole purpose of setting up why the Beast is able to do inhuman things. She talks about people who have DID having actual physical changes to their bodies based on what identity is in control. There is an entire depressing sub-story about Cassie's terrible pedophile uncle who becomes her legal guardian after her dad dies. Why are dead dads a horror trope? It seems like there is a 90% chance for a dad to be dead if one of the main characters is a girl. The dad died in Hansel and Gretel. 50% of the movies watched for this episode have dead dads. 
Another movie below also has a dead dad making that 50%. I'm going to start noting this phenomenon. I guess the easy explanation for it is to make the main characters seem more vulnerable and sad. There aren't a ton of gory moments in this movie. Sure, the beast does animalistically attack and kill some of the characters, but his actions aren't shown on screen for the most part. We do see brief glimpses of the aftermath, which look fine. M. Night plays a random character in the movie that loves Hooters. His acting is terrible and his inclusion unnecessary. The movie ends with a scene that ties the Split and Unbreakable universes together. I did enjoy Unbreakable, but I don't think there is any reason for Bruce Willis's character to pop up at the end of Split. M. Night, come on man. Let's be real. You are not making some weird superhero cinematic universe. No one wants to see the Shyamalan universe where Bruce Willis hunts down James McAvoy. I know you felt you needed some dumb twist at the end, but the way it is brought up doesn't even make sense. At a diner, people are watching a news story about the Beast, where they refer to him as the Horde instead for some reason. This prompts a girl to talk about Mr. Glass from Unbreakable. There are no similarities between the characters, yet the girl says, This is like the crazy guy in the wheelchair that they put away 15 years ago, and they gave him a funny name too. What was it? Bruce Willis then answers, Mr. Glass. Grabbing at loose ends much? Back to Split. Two of the girls are locked in separate closets. They are in them for most of the movie. Right at the end, one of them says they should look around the rooms for something to escape. Really? You two haven't been doing this the entire time? They know that the closet doors have those sliding locks on the outside, so one of the girls finds a hanger and tries to slide the lock open. This is as stupid as it sounds. Luckily, she fails since it is impossible to open the lock in that way. But we do get to watch her try for about five minutes. Split is decent for an M. Night Shyamalan movie. I don't feel like it's a very memorable movie though. It's enjoyable yet forgettable. I softly recommend this one solely because of James McAvoy's acting. Number 5, Truth or Dare, 2018, directed by Jeff Wadlow. A girl named Olivia and her best friend Marky go to Mexico with a group of their college friends for spring break. There, Olivia meets a guy named Carter who takes them all to an old mission to play Truth or Dare. After playing there, everyone is followed by a demon named Calix, who makes them play Truth or Dare. If they don't go through with the Truth, Dare, or refuse to play, they die. Carter, whose real name is Sam, was part of the original group that accidentally unleashed the demon that was sealed away in the mission. Another OG member is named Giselle. She kills a woman in the beginning of the movie after being dared to do it, and also kills one of Olivia's friends who takes a bullet for Olivia. Everyone but Olivia and Marky end up dead. Olivia invites the world to play the game on her YouTube channel to save herself and Marky. The demon trickster Calix, Giselle, Carter slash Sam, a random cop, and Olivia are the killers. Carter slash Sam and Olivia are killers since they knew bringing more people into the game would lead to more death. 
Oh, and there's a part in the movie where a kid steals his cop dad's gun after a dare and gets shot by another cop. Random cop. You could have at least tried to defuse the situation before shooting a college kid in the back. I have a hard time believing that the random cop would not know that was his partner's son. Rando cop didn't even announce himself. Just shot the kid in the back while his dad was in front of him. Lucky for Rando, the bullet didn't go through the kid or he probably would have killed two people. I knew this movie was going to be bad, but I thought it was going to be a fun time at least. Even though there are some fun moments in this, they are few and far between. In this 1 hour and 40 minute movie, why is this movie so long? I don't know, listener. There is no reason for it to be this drawn out. I want everyone to take a second and think about the premise. A group of people are eternally locked into a game of truth or dare. If they don't participate, they die. Also, if two people in a row have chosen truth, the next person is forced to choose dare. Now, if you are like me, you can probably think of a million crazy dares and situations that this game could lead to. This movie doesn't really do anything interesting with such an open premise. All the truths are dumb. One kid is forced to come out to his cop dad who is totally cool with his son being gay. A love triangle is cleared up. And Olivia reveals that Marky's dad who committed suicide was an alcoholic creep who Olivia told to off himself after he tried to come on to her. Okay, that last one is a bit of a doozy, but all the other truths were rather stupid. The dares are lame, and most of them could easily be done without issue if all they have to do is follow the exact wording. A guy named Ronnie, who is one of the best characters in the movie due to him being a hilarious douchebag, asks the girl if she wants to see his pool cue, which is in reference to his penis. But he does have a pool cue in his hand as well. He is then dared to show everyone his pool cue. Ronnie, just show everyone your literal pool cue. If the demon wanted you to show everyone your penis, he should have dared you to show everyone your penis. Olivia is dared to sleep with Marky's boyfriend. Just literally go to sleep in the same bed as him. Olivia is dared to tell Marky that secret she said she'd never tell her. Olivia, literally tell Marky that secret I said I'd never tell you. Marky is dared to shoot Olivia. Okay, shoot her with a nerf gun, rubber band, a smile. See, it's easy to do these dares if you think about it. Now, that one dare where the girl is dared to walk around on the edges of a roof until she finishes a fifth of vodka, that one you just have to do. The wording was pretty well chosen there, Mr. Demon. During this dare, Olivia drives a car into a fence attached to said house to knock the fence down, not realizing that hitting the fence would shake the house. The girl walking on the edge doesn't fall, luckily enough. The fence has to be taken out because it has the sharpest posts in the history of fences. Two of the friends put a mattress on these deadly posts and they go straight through the mattress. It's ridiculous. The acting is good enough for what this is. The dead dad trope is present. The gore is non-existent since this is a PG-13 movie. Speaking of PG-13 movies, this movie uses screw you, which I don't think anyone has ever seriously said to someone in anger in real life. 
I hate when I hear that phrase in movies. It sounds stupid and takes me out of whatever I'm watching. If you've seen the trailer, you know Truth or Dare uses a dumb Snapchat-style filter that warps people's smiles to represent when the demon has taken over someone. I probably would have made some quip about this, but the movie literally calls it out as being Snapchat-esque, which I actually appreciate. If only the rest of the movie was as self-aware as that call-out, maybe it would have been something worth watching. Besides Truth or Dare, Jeff Wadlow also wrote and directed Cry Wolf back in 2005, which I saw but can't remember anything about. So maybe skip any horror movies he's attached to. Two of the actors, Lucy Hale and Tyler Posey, were killed by ghost faces. Lucy in Scream 4 and Tyler in the third season of the Scream TV show, which I thought was cancelled after its second season. I really wish they made a Scream 5 instead of that show. The first season is kind of fun though. Skip Truth or Dare and watch one of the Final Destinations instead. Number 6, Dude Bro Party Massacre 3, 2015, directed by Michael Ruslet, John Salmon, and Tom Jacobson. First, a sorority mother massacred some frat bros. Some of the bros killed her, so her daughter then became Motherface and massacred more frat bros. Motherface is killed by a frat bro named Brock. Brock is then killed, which causes his twin brother Brent to pledge the Delta Bi frat to find out who killed his brother. Motherface then reappears and starts a third frat massacre. It's revealed that this Motherface is the other's twin sister. Brent kills her with power received from the ghosts of his dead bros. The sorority mother, her daughters dressed as Motherface, Officer Sminkle, the Delta Bi fraternity, and its pledges are the killers. The frat and pledges are killers due to their pranks causing massive disasters, and Officer Sminkle uses his van to run over a guy that was yelling at a kid. Yeah, the movie is absolutely ridiculous. It is the feature film debut of the five-second film comedy troupe. Even though it is the third movie in the series, the first two movies don't exist. This movie is a satire of the copious amounts of sorority-themed slashers and their objectifying nature. It's also a love letter to the slasher genre. There are a ton of practically done kills in this movie. People are torn in half, beheaded, slashed, stabbed, tapped like a keg, shot with a harpoon, impaled, disemboweled after having their intestines flushed down a toilet, lit on fire, run over by a van, cut in half after being stabbed through their pregnant stomach, hit in the face with a throwing axe, electrocuted, and more that I can't remember at the moment. All of these kills are done practically, and all of them are absolutely over the top and hilarious. It's easy to say the gore in this movie is some of the most fun and extravagant work that I've seen in some time. My favorite kill of the movie has to be when one of the pledges is disemboweled, then has his intestines flushed down the toilet, which pulls them from his body. Yeah, that happens in the movie. It reminded me a lot of Ricky O, the story of Ricky. I know I've brought that movie up before, and I will probably continue to do so. Go watch that right now if you haven't seen it. Back to Dude Bro Party Massacre 3. 
It's awesome to see the five-second film crew take on a feature-length movie and succeed. Sure, it does drag a bit towards the end, but for the most part, the movie is incredibly fun and packed with so many jokes and sight gags that made me have a smile on my face for at least 70% of the runtime. There are a bunch of random people in this movie besides the comedy troupe. There's Larry King, Patton Oswalt, Nina Hartley, Andrew W.K., and Greg Sestero. The movie was written by the entire Five Second Films team, but they were allegedly prohibited from working together. Alec Owen stitched together a screenplay from all the nonsense they came up with. I believe this to be true given the all-over-the-place nature of the film, which somehow works. The movie was kickstarted, earning $241,071 from backers, which definitely went towards creating something great. I love it when a Kickstarter pans out, since I feel like most Kickstarted things end up either never being released or incredibly disappointing. If you are a fan of campy slashers and completely random humor, you should definitely check out Dude Bro Party Massacre 3. It's a very fun film. Number 7, Condemned Criminal Origins 2005, developed by Monolith Productions. This is a video game where you play as SCU agent Ethan Thomas. While investigating a murder, you are framed by a character referred to as Serial Killer X for the murder of two cops. You go through a ton of creepy, abandoned levels like an office building, department store, a school, and an orchard where you find evidence and fight your way through vagrants who have gone blood crazy. You eventually come across the bodies of serial killers you were investigating that have been killed by Serial Killer X. In the end, you confront him and find out that some random nonsense called the hate is the cause of everything. You kill the hate and Serial Killer X dies. The game ends with you becoming the hate. Ethan Thomas, Serial Killer X, other serial killers, blood crazed vagrants, and the hate are the killers. I'm pretty sure you have to kill some people in the game that you could have just handcuffed in real life situations, so you end up being a killer. I mean, you can probably do some sort of pacifist run, but full disclosure, I haven't played this game in over 10 years. Why am I bringing this game up? Well, it was one of the most intense games I have ever played and is very unique. The plot goes a little off the deep end once the hate comes into play, but the game is genuinely eerie and has some interesting gameplay. People are trying to kill you and unlike most first person perspective games, guns are a rarity. Throughout the game you have to make do with random blunt objects as your only source of protection from psychopaths that are hiding in the shadows. A big part of the game is investigating crime scenes. You take photos of things like corpses, collect evidence, follow substances, and record audio. It's really cool. I wish there was a more current game that would do something similar. A current gen game where you spend more time investigating grisly crime scenes and actually avoid the terrifying murderers would be really cool. In Condemn, there's a department store littered with spooky mannequins that gives me the heebie-jeebies, but the level that I remember the most clearly involves you going through an abandoned school. The school is unsettling and creepy the entire time you make your way through it. And once you get to the cafeteria kitchen, you have to face a horrifying, cleaver-wielding maniac. At that point, you may or may not have a gun, since they are not plentiful, 
So a lot of the time you end up having to face this monster of a man with something like a border pipe as your only means of protection. I've taken a look at some gameplay videos and the graphics haven't aged incredibly well. I mean, when the game came out they were amazing. The game was an Xbox 360 launch title after all. I camped out overnight at a Best Buy to get a 360 day one and one of the games I picked up with it was Condemned, I think. My memory is a little hazy regarding what I did or didn't buy on that particular day. I was pretty sleep deprived, as you can imagine. Condemned has a sequel that I didn't get around to playing. It went further down the path of making you a badass that beats dudes up when I wanted something that focused more on investigating the creepy serial killers. Condemned Criminal Origins is a unique game that I hope to see rebooted in the future. If you see it on sale for cheap, I'd say give it a run through. The episode 19 case is now closed. I can't believe the next episode is going to be the big 2-0, the Dos Equis of Blank is the Killer. It's been a wild ride so far, and I hope that you loyal and new listeners have been enjoying these blood-filled episodes. Like I say at the end of every episode, big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting this podcast on their website, which allows it to go out into the world and be its own entity on all your favorite podcast apps. If you enjoyed listening to this boy Babylon about horror movies, please consider leaving an iTunes rating. I know, I know, iTunes is terrible, but allegedly getting ratings on that platform is important. Seeing feedback also makes me upside down frown. If you have any movie recommendations, shout them at me wherever possible. I want to do an episode that's all about animated horror movies, so if you know of any exciting, feature-length animated horror movies, holler at your boy. On June 3rd, light a black candle and take a quick glimpse of the flame in the reflection of an antique silver mirror. In the flame, you should see Blank is the Killer, episode 20. If that doesn't work, I guess you can just look on your favorite podcast app around... 9 p.m. on that day. Till next time, goodbye my pretties.